Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. Today, we move from origami and folding of objects to the opposite spectrum, the rigidity of objects. We are motivated by a question of rigidity in chemistry about stereoisomers. Now, we talked about this with relation to the symmetry of molecules and the Jones polynomial. We've seen stereoisomers in that context. But what are stereoisomers? Just as a refresher, we see that stereoisomers are molecules having the same basic arrangement of atoms and bonds, but differ in the way the atoms are arranged in space. There are several different stereoisomers that come from the same set of pieces, the atoms, and their gluing information, the bonds. So although we are told that the atoms and the bonds must be glued and arranged in exactly the same order and fashion, the way they can sit in space can change. So an example is the dichloroethene molecule, C2H2Cl2, made of carbon, hydrogen, and chlorine. Take a look. Here we see two examples of this molecule. The one on the left has the chlorine attached to the two carbons in the center. There's a chlorine attached to one of the carbons, and that carbon is attached to another carbon with a double bond. And notice the carbons are attached to each other, and the carbons are attached to the chlorine and the hydrogen on the left. But on the right, you have the exact same thing as well. You have the two carbons in the center attached to each other, and each carbon is attached to a hydrogen and a chlorine, just like the one on the left. But the one on the left and the one on the right have different structures since they're sitting in space differently. Although they're made up of the same pieces of the puzzle, and you're asked to glue the puzzle the same way, the resulting objects are different. And since they are not identical, it turns out they have different properties. Form and function are once again related. Well, we proved below that if stereoisomers form convex polyhedra, they must be congruent. We're going to explore what this means in a little bit in more detail. But basically, if stereoisomers form convex polyhedra, there can be only one kind of them. You can't have many different versions. Well, first, we begin with an understanding of an amazing mathematical theorem called Cauchy's Rigidity Theorem. We are given a collection of polygonal faces, and we are told how each of these faces glue together. So here's the question. How many different resulting objects can we obtain? Remember what we're given again. The same identical pieces of the puzzle, and we're told how the puzzle fits together. The question is, how many different answers can you get at the end of the day from the pieces and from the gluing information? It is possible that we might not get a closed polyhedron. So let me explain this a little bit. A polyhedron is closed if it has no boundary, if all the edges have a matching face on either side. There's no boundary to the polyhedron. Now, if the resulting object that we have is not a closed polyhedron, then take a look at this following example. Here we see a polyhedron. It's made up of four triangles, and it's not closed because I haven't filled in and completed this polyhedron. But look, I've given the gluing information, this glues to this, this glues to this, and it tells me exactly what the gluing information is. But yet, as I flex it, 
we see that the polyhedron actually changes. So given the same pieces of the puzzle and the same gluing information, there are numerous ways that I can arrange this object. In fact, it turns out I have infinitely many different geometric polyhedra I get based on the pieces of the puzzle and how they glue. This one, this one, this one, this one, this one. These are all different objects. So the same pieces of the puzzle give me several different objects. Now, we can also get only one object if the object is uh, a cube with the top of it removed. So if we take a cube and remove the top of it, notice that there's only one object you can possibly get. So sometimes you will get different objects, and sometimes you'll end up getting just one object if the polyhedron is not closed. So let's pretend our polyhedron now are closed, that it actually completes fully around, that there's no boundary. But now we assume our polyhedron, being closed, is not convex. What does this mean? Well, a polyhedron is convex if any line segment between any two points on the polyhedron passes through the polyhedron and not outside of it. Here we see a tetrahedron, and notice if I pick any two points in the polyhedron, the line between them, the site of visibility between those two points, passes inside the tetrahedron for any two points you could possibly imagine. Thus, the tetrahedron is convex. What about a cube? A cube is also convex. Any two points in the cube can see each other completely inside the cube. Well, what about this object here? It's sort of like a hat of a Viking. Notice that this object is not convex. For these two points, you see that line connecting those two points is inside the polyhedron, but for these two points, the line connecting it is outside the polyhedron. Thus, this is not a convex object. Now, we know if the object that we start off with isn't closed, that there could be several different versions of the polyhedron, like the cootie catcher example we just talked about. But if the resulting object is not convex, but it does become closed, then again, it turns out that there are several different objects we can get. Let's take a look. Here, I have the base and sides of a cube, and I am going to tell you the gluing information is exactly like this, as the cube says, and I use these as the pieces of the puzzle, and I'm actually gonna give you more objects to give you a complete closed polyhedron. So I can take this cap made up of four triangles, exactly equilateral, and I can put the cap on this polyhedron. I get a closed polyhedron. Notice the green goes with the green, the blue goes with the blue, the red goes with the red. It's exactly the gluing information I have, and it's closed polyhedron. But using the exact same gluing information and the exact same pieces of the puzzle, I can get this polyhedron. Notice it has the same four triangles, and it has gluing the same way. The yellow glues with the blue, just like the yellow glued with the blue here. And the green glues with the red, just like the green glues with the red. And they also glue here, the yellow with the yellow, the blue with the blue. So notice I have two different possible polyhedron I could obtain based on exactly the same gluing information and the same pieces of the puzzle. So we are forced to eliminate these two objects, first of all. We need to make sure our polyhedron are closed. There's no holes, no, there's no boundary. And we need to make sure our polyhedron are convex, that every point can see every other point. This results in Cauchy's rigidity theorem from 1813. One of the most beautiful theorems of polyhedra. It says the following thing. If two closed convex polyhedra 
are combinatorially equivalent. In other words, if they have the same gluing information with congruent faces, in other words, the same pieces of the puzzle, then the two polyhedra must be identical. Let me say that again. If two closed convex polyhedron have the same gluing information with the same pieces of the puzzle, then there's only one polyhedron you could possibly build. It must be identical to one another. In other words, this gives the same pieces of the puzzle and the same set of instructions, and only one model can be built. As you notice, we saw earlier with the cube, with this top pyramid inverted, there are two models you could build with the same instructions and the same piece of the puzzle, but yet it was not convex. So the moment you have closed and the moment you have convexity, only one piece can be made. Now there are some stunning implications of Cauchy's rigidity theorem. In the world of chemistry, we see that convex stereoisomers, if you have a collection of stereoisomers that close up to a convex polyhedral structure, then we know if we have a convex collection of stereoisomers, they must be congruent. In other words, there's only one kind of objects you could possibly make from a chemical perspective. So thus, you don't need to worry about form and function. There's only one thing you can do. Since there is only one way to glue objects to make them convex, what do we notice? If there's only one way to possibly make this convex object based on the gluing information and the pieces of the puzzle, that means all the dihedral angles of the two polyhedra must be the same. Every angle formed by those two edges glued together that we talked about last time, the dihedral angle that you get between those two edges, all of those dihedral angles of the polyhedra must be the same around every edge. Moreover, since the dihedral angles must be the same, convex polyhedra cannot flex. They must be rigid. Let's take a look at this example. Here, we have an example of this beautiful structure, the soccer ball design made of a polyhedral version. But each edge on this polyhedral structure is flexible. I can actually flex along this edge. It's made up exactly like the pieces that I showed you earlier. But the moment I make it convex and the moment I close it up so there's no holes, it completely forms the shape of a completed polygonal sphere, this cannot flex. Although each one has freedom to move, together there is no freedom at all. It must be rigid. Since if it did flex, if somehow this did flex, then I would have another polyhedron which was not congruent to this one, but it would have the same pieces of the puzzle, because it would be just made up of the same thing, just flexing, and it would be having the same gluing information. But Cauchy's rigidity theorem says you can only have one such thing. You can't have two objects that have the same gluing information and the same pieces of the puzzle, which give you convexity and closure at the same time. Now, the proof of Cauchy's rigidity theorem is broken into three steps. Now, I'm going to give you a warning. This is one of the most ambitious ventures we're going to undertake. These three steps are easy to follow one by one, but at the end, when we culminate and put it together again, it involves almost every piece of the puzzle we have used so far in making sense of what we're doing. So I encourage you to look through and see this again if the first time around it didn't make full and complete sense. Now step one of Cauchy's rigidity theorem's proof 
involves a one-dimensional linkage theorem, a linkage idea that we talked about last time, called Cauchy's arm lemma. Now, this could be easily called Cauchy's arm theorem. A lemma, from a mathematical perspective, is a true result, just like a theorem is a true result. The only reasons mathematicians use lemma instead of theorem is it's a subjective reason. We believe lemmas are not as great as theorems. If you think a lemma is a great result, then you have the right to call it a theorem. That's the only difference. But moreover, these lemmas that we're going to talk about, the step one and the step two where we're going to build these lemmas, are going to be used to prove Cauchy's arm, excuse me, Cauchy's rigidity theorem, and thus we call it a lemma because it's not as important as the end result. So what does this Cauchy's arm lemma say? Let's take a look. If a chain, a convex chain, as you see here on the plane, has some or all of its internal angles increase, then the distance between its two endpoints must increase. Look at this convex chain. It's convex because any point can see any other point inside this collection, inside this closed polygon you get. So you have this chain, and if you pick some of the internal angles here and here and here, for example, and you increase them, not too much, not over 180 degrees, not over being flat, but you just increase them, then it turns out that the distance between the two endpoints has to also increase. Now this seems almost obvious, but yet the proof comes from the fact that the cosine function that you see here, the cosine x, the x-axis, and the y-axis is the, is the height of the cosine, the cosine function you see here is an increasing function between negative pi to zero. As you see from negative pi to zero, cosine is an increasing function. The proof of this arm lemma is based on that result. So although we don't want to talk about it in detail now, I just want to give you a glimpse of what the geometric implications are. That's the first step. The first step was the Cauchy's arm lemma. The second step involves a simple two-coloring lemma. Again, we call this a lemma because we're going to use it later, and we don't think it's as important as this theorem coming up. Let G be any connected graph on the plane, made up of vertices and edges, any connected graph you can draw on the plane, that is arbitrarily colored with two colors. So you draw any graph on the plane, and you choose to color the edges either red or blue. It's your choice, any way you want, for any graph you want. So here's an example of a graph I drew. I've colored the edges arbitrarily red and blue. So what does this two-coloring lemma say? It says, as we walk around each vertex, let's count the number of times the colors change. So if you look at this vertex, notice it goes from red to blue, and then blue to blue, blue to red, and red to red again. So there's two color changes. It goes from red to blue once, and then it goes from the blue to red. So there's two color changes. This vertex over here has four color changes. It goes from blue to red, and then it goes from, as you spin around, it goes from red to blue, and then blue to red, and then red to blue again. So there are four times the colors change. Do this for different vertices. The lemma says, no matter what graph is drawn on the plane, and no matter how it's colored, picking red and blue, there will always be a vertex with at most two color changes. At most, you'll only have two color changes for any vertex as you walk around it. Notice here, we have that vertex with two color changes. We have several vertices, which only have two color changes as we walk around. So in this particular case, the lemma is satisfied. But this is true for any graph you can imagine and any coloring you so desire. There's always a vertex with at most two color changes. That's what this lemma says. 
But notice how this graph breaks the plane into vertices, edges, and faces. You see all those vertices? We can count 19 vertices for this graph. We can count 22 edges, and there's four closed regions. Those are my faces, plus my outside big face. It's my fifth face. And you see, we have Euler's formula again. Vertices, 19, minus edges, 22, plus the number of faces, 5, equals 2. Remember the Euler formula, V minus E plus F equals 2? Well, the proof of this lemma, the two-coloring lemma, uses Euler's formula to prove it. Again, we don't want to go into the details of this proof right now because we're interested in Cauchy's rigidity theorem. So now, given these two lemmas as facts, we're going to assume that they've already been proven, I want to show you the proof of Cauchy's rigidity theorem. And it involves an elegant mixing of the previous two lemmas, the arm lemma and the two-coloring lemma. Here's what I'm going to do. Let P and Q be two polyhedra that are combinatorially equivalent, they're made up of the same pieces of the puzzle, glued the same way, but let's pretend they have different dihedral angles. So we're going to assume that we have the same pieces of the puzzle glued the same way, but yet there turn out to be two different ones. We're going to assume that Cauchy's rigidity theorem is wrong, and we're going to find a contradiction. We must find a contradiction that this cannot happen. So we're going to pretend we have two different polygon, polyhedra, excuse me, P and Q, two different polyhedra, that have the same pieces of the puzzle with the same gluing instruction, but somehow the dihedral angles are different. One is bent differently than the other. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to color the edges of P. So take my polygon P and look at the edges of P. And I'm going to color P, these edges, blue, if its dihedral angle is more than that of Q. So remember, this edge, there's a corresponding edge over here. Each edge is another edge. Each vertex is another vertex. Each face is matching faces. Remember, it's made up of the same pieces of the puzzle glued the same way. So for every face and edge and vertex, there's another guy over here. So I'm going to take one of my edges, look at P alone. I'm going to color this blue if its dihedral angles are more than Q. And I'm going to look at some edges, and I'm going to color them red if those dihedral angles here happen to be less than Q. And many of those other ones, edges, if they have the same dihedral angles, I'm going to leave it alone. Now I know some of my edges are going to be colored differently than, than Q because of the fact that they're different, because the dihedral angles are different. If they had identical dihedral angles, they'd be the same. But I'm assuming they're different dihedral angles. I color them blue, and I color them red, and those that are the same, I leave alone. We are now going to convert this geometric problem about angles into a topological problem first. Remember that we can lay flat polyhedral graphs of P by removing one of its faces, putting my fingers in, I'm going to stretch it and put it flat on the plane. Let me use that trick. I'm going to take my polygon, polyhedron P, I'm going to take a face and stretch it and lay it flat topologically. I've lost all angle information, but I just want to know which is touching which. Looking at only the colored edges, since it's flat on the plane, looking at only the colored edges and forgetting all the other ones, I choose a connected graph from these. Maybe there are a bunch of colored edges over here on this plane. Maybe there are a bunch of colored edges over here. I just look at one of the set of colored edges that's connected. Now, what do I have? I have a graph made up of vertices and edges, these colored edges, on the plane. Well, by the previous two coloring lemma, there is a vertex somewhere on here with at most two color changes by our step two above, our second lemma. But this vertex on this plane corresponds to a vertex on my polyhedron, P. 
Now that we have found our special vertex to focus on on our polyhedron, we enter the land of geometry again. So we have used topology to do what we want, and we enter geometry. And what do we do now? Well, we take this vertex here. Remember, the moment we have a vertex in this polyhedron, we have another vertex, the identical vertex in this polyhedron. I'm going to take a sphere of radius really small value, extremely small value. I'm just going to put a small sphere of a small radius around that vertex. I'm going to put a small sphere of the same radius around the vertex over here corresponding to Q. Now this cuts out a spherical polygon around P and it cuts out a spherical polygon around Q. Remember, if I take the sphere and if I intersect it, if I intersect a sphere with my polyhedron, I would get some polygon, some polygonal piece over here. Now, note that a dihedral angle of the polyhedron, this angle of this polyhedron, now gets converted to a polygonal angle, to that polygon's angle. So I've now converted a two-dimensional dihedral angle problem between two faces to a one-dimensional angle problem between two edges. And now we are beginning to see where Cauchy's polygonal arm lemma could fit in. Now we know that this vertex that I picked, V, has either zero or two color changes for the edges incident to V. It only has zero or two color changes. Remember, that's the special vertex I picked the first time by laying it flat. But a color change of an edge incident to V means a change in the dihedral angle of the edge of the polyhedron. Remember, that's what those color changes meant in the first place. If it's blue, the angle's bigger, and if it's red, the angle's smaller. So let's consider the two possible cases of zero or two color changes separately. So I'm looking at V, I'm looking at around V, that small region, and I get this polygon around this. Now, if no sign changes or around V, if it has zero color changes, then all the colored edges of the polygon P touching V must be of one color, since it has no color changes, right? So all of them must be blue, or all of them must be red. Let's just say, for the sake of argument, let's, they're all blue. Thus, all angles of the polygon from P are either larger, if the edge is blue, or equal to, if it has no color, than the polygon from Q. So we get a polygon that we cut out from the sphere intersecting this, we look at the polygon. And since the dihedral angles are bigger because they're all blue over here, then Q, that means my polygon over here, must have bigger angles than the one from Q. Now delete an edge in both of the corresponding polygons. Delete the corresponding edge from both of these polygons, one from the polygon P and one from the polygon Q. Since the angles in P are different, this deleted edge must have different lengths for P and for Q. Let me explain why. Let me cut that edge up. Since the angles in, of P are bigger than those of Q, remember because these have those blue edges, then that edge connecting them by Cauchy's arm lemma says that extra length that you get at closing up that chain must be a longer one than it is for Q. But this edge length is actually just the length of a part of a face of the polyhedron. Remember we took the sphere and cut it and we got that edge length right there? So my edge lengths couldn't change because I started with the same pieces of the puzzle. All faces are congruent. So this is impossible. I cannot have a vertex with zero color changes around it. But I know that my vertex V that I picked has either zero color changes or two color changes. So I just eliminated the zero color change possibility or else the polygon around here would have been bigger than this and by Cauchy's arm lemma, that's impossible. What if there are two color changes? 
Let's take a look. If there are two color changes, we get a situation like this. We use a similar type of idea as earlier. If two color changes, then it must go from a blue part, maybe there's a bunch of blue points which correspond to these vertices increasing, these dihedral angles increasing, to a collection of red points, maybe that corresponds to them decreasing. Remember, there are only two color changes, so you can have a bunch of blues going to red, and maybe a bunch of reds going to blue, only two color changes. Now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw an edge between these two transitional parts, between the red-blue part and the blue-red part. Now consider the length of this edge from the blue side of the polygon, from the blue's perspective. Blue says things are getting bigger, the dihedral angles are getting bigger, which means for this edge length from the Q side, it must increase. But look at it from the red side of the polygon's perspective. Well, the red says things are getting smaller, which means the dihedral angles are decreasing, these angles are getting smaller, so this edge length must have gotten smaller. Well, Cauchy's arm lemma says this edge must have different angle lengths, one smaller and one bigger. But this is impossible. You can't have an edge with two possible length changes, smaller and bigger. Thus, this vertex cannot have two color changes. But we know that the vertex V from the very beginning has either two or zero color changes. But yet we showed both of these cases cannot happen. So what does that mean? There's a contradiction. We assumed something incorrectly at the very beginning. And what we assumed was some of the dihedral angles of P were different than Q. Our very original step of when we started coloring things red and blue because they were different was where we messed up. That was a wrong assumption. Thus, all the dihedral angles are the same, and the polyhedra are identical. That is Cauchy's rigidity theorem. It is an amazingly complicated result using these two lemmas in a beautifully intricate way, going into topology, using Euler's formula, jumping back into geometry, talking about converting dihedral angles into angles of polygons. Oh, it's gorgeous. Now, I have skipped certain parts throughout this proof, which can be detailed later on, but I encourage you to look at a bigger picture setting of how this proof works. It is actually good sometimes to actually look under the hood of some of these theorems as we did today to see how mathematicians think and what makes things work. Now, what do we know? We know convex polyhedra are rigid, but what about non-convex polyhedra? We know that if the polyhedra is closed and convex, it has to be rigid. But what do we know about non-convex polyhedra? Well, can non-convex polyhedra flex? Well, if we go back to our original case over here, notice that this is the non-convex polyhedra of going from this to this. But this is not really flexing. I can't flex this and make it into this. I can only replace these pieces and go like this. There are these two independent possible possibilities. So the question is, can you have a non-convex polyhedron that actually flexes? This was an enormous open problem since 1813. Hermann Gluck, in 1976, proved that in the space of all polyhedra, if you have a space where each point in the space is a different polyhedra, the space of all polyhedra, the rigid polyhedra, turn out to be everywhere, like the rational numbers in the real number line. The rigid polyhedra are just everywhere your eyes look, they're rigid polyhedra. Now, he didn't prove that all polyhedra were rigid, but he said the rigid ones are everywhere. Have a, have a fun time trying to find something that flexes, 
So the belief was there is not going to be any polyhedron, convex or non-convex, that flexes. In fact, if you go home and try to build these on your own, you will see that it is quite difficult to make anything that flexes at all. You have to close it up with all the edges being able to flex, but at the end of the day, it must close up and you will notice it becomes rigid. Well, in a stunning result, Robert Connolly in 1978 proved that there exist flexible polyhedra, and he constructed this with one having 30 triangular faces. He was motivated by a flexible object in four dimensions, which Connolly then tried to project into three dimensions to obtain this inspiration. We're going to talk about these four-dimensional objects in future lectures. Currently, Klaus Steffen has reduced this polyhedron with 30 triangles to a polyhedron with only 14 triangles. Now, here is a picture of this polyhedron constructed by my students, Rohan Mera and Norm Nicholson, made of plexiglass in a course I taught at Williams. Notice how it actually flexes along these edges. Every edge is hinged, the whole polyhedron becomes not convex, and yet it flexes. And because of this, a new question came. As we flex the polyhedra, does its volume change? Does it form a bellows? You know how you have a bellows to pump air into the fireplace? Does the polyhedra form a mathematical bellows? If you poke a hole in it, and if you flex it, does the, does the volume change? Is the air getting pumped in and out of this polyhedron? Well, let's take a look. For the two-dimensional case, for the two-dimensional case, if I have a polygon, and if I can flex along these vertices, these correspond to flexing along edges in 3D, then look, here's my area, and as I flex, my area is decreasing, or it could increase, or decrease. In fact, I can make my area as small as I want. So in the two-dimensional version, it's certainly the case that area changes as we flex. For the 3D case, Dennis Sullivan conjectured that the volume actually remains fixed. And in 1997, Connolly and Waltz, along with this monumental work by Sabatov, proved that this is true. Volume remains fixed as you flex this polyhedron. Beautiful work. They prove that no matter what polyhedron you have, convex or non-convex, rigid or flexible, volume will always be the same if it can flex or if it can't. An amazing, powerful geometric result has been shown today, Cauchy's rigidity theorem. It is an extremely ambitious theorem to prove, and I wanted to show you the hood under the hood to see this engine involving geometry of polygons, Euler characteristics in disguise, and the cleverness of putting it all together elegantly. Well, in our next lecture, we push forward more into geometry by polygons and their uses in terrain reconstruction data. Stay tuned.